0: Are you concerned about the test you're going to have to take to get into graduate or professional schools? We have two test prep experts and fellow podcasters on the show today. You're going to get some great tips on prepping for the test and choosing the right test prep option for you. Welcome
1: to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. That Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout,
2: yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect
1: program to help you launch the career of your dreams.
0: Welcome to the 443rd episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me. Today's show is all about test prep, and I'd like to start with a one-question quiz for you. What is the paradox at the heart of graduate school admissions? You have five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one, I'll tell you. You have to show that you belong at your target programs and that you stand out in this applicant pool. Doing so is a paradox, and it's a challenge. Except it's free download, fitting in and standing out, the paradox at the heart of admissions will show you how to do both simultaneously. Master this paradox, and you are well on your way to acceptance. Download your guide at accepted.com slash F-I-S-O, as in fitting in, standing out. I want to thank Alex Levenger for leaving a review on our July 20th episode. I'm going to quote excerpt from it. He wrote, I gained some excellent bits from the July 20th episode. Number one, there really are two disparate attitudes that can make the GMAT tough, thinking you're better than the exam and freezing into paralysis. And his second point was the GMAT is a metaphor for study for or general work tasks. My main quibble is with the initial assessment test. I think it's faulty to gain any useful granular info into a student by use of this test. Lots of people agree with you, Alex. Our guests today, however, are test prep experts and fellow podcasters, Mike Bergen and Amy Seeley. Word about each of them. With over 27 years of intensive experience in every aspect of standardized test preparation, Mike Bergen knows what works in test prep and what doesn't. A nationally recognized leader in test prep, Mike founded Chariot Learning in 2009 to deliver on the promise of what truly transformative, individualized education can and should be. Mike is also the founding president of the Board of Directors of the National Test Prep Association, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting the highest ethical standards and best practices in the test prep industry while advocating for the appropriate administration and use of standardized tests for admissions and assessment purposes. And lastly, Mike is also the co-host of Tests and the Rest, the college admissions industry podcast and creator of the Facebook industry group for test prep professionals, Test Prep Tribe. He and his podcast co-host, Amy Seeley, even run the nation's leading test prep conferences and online summits. Turning to Amy, Amy Seeley began her career in test preparation over 28 years ago, working for Princeton Review. After gaining valuable knowledge and experience as a part-time tutor, she turned that passion into a career with Townsend Learning Centers. She quickly assumed the role of director of test preparation services, creating, managing, and administering all aspects of Townsend's test preparation programs. After leaving Townsend in 2006, Amy began Sealy Test Preparation Services, meeting the test preparation needs of several hundred students annually in the greater Cleveland area. As demand grew for Amy's assistance in improving test scores, Sealy Test Pros was born in 2012 with the addition of tutors trained in the successful methods and strategies of Amy's experience. Amy's knowledge of standardized tests is unsurpassed. Amy is the founder and co-host with Mike Bergen of Test and the Rest, College Admissions Industry Podcast, which discusses the latest issues in testing, admissions, learning, and education with experts. She is a co-founder of the National Test Preparation Association and a leader of its inaugural board of directors. She has presented at national test preparation conferences and is a contributor to the Test, Pre- test Prep Tribe, a national collaboration of test prep professionals on Facebook. Mike and Amy, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Awesome to be here.
2: We're thrilled to be here, Linda. Thanks for having us.
0: My pleasure. Now, there are lots of test prep options out there. In some places, there are in-class options. Regardless of whether you're taking online or offline, grad school applicants need to choose between self-study, what I'd like to call kind of uh, online guided self-study, online courses that you go at your own pace, formal courses, and individual one-on-one tutoring. How can students choose the right approach for them?
2: Mike, you want to start? So Linda, I'm glad that you phrased the question, assuming that everyone's going to prepare for these really important tests, because that should be like the foundation of the conversation. If you are taking a GRE, a GMAT, an LSAT, an MCAT, any important test, you're going to study, you're going to prepare, just like if you're taking the final exam for your course. If you don't you know what happens. So everybody should prepare, especially because selective admissions is highly competitive. So understanding that preparation is key is the first step. The second step is being brutally honest about who you are as a learner in that there are some individuals who are autodidacts. Anything that they're interested in, they can learn it themselves to a very high level. You know, I have a friend who never never played music before. One day he picked up a guitar and, you know, fast forward 30 years later, he's a rock and roll lawyer and he <laughs> likes the rock and roll more than the law. He like, taught himself to be a phenomenal musician, <laughs> engineer, songwriter, everything. But most people aren't like that. I picked up a guitar lots of times. <laughs> I put it back down when everybody asked me to stop whatever it was that I was doing. Uh, That most of us need some kind of support, whether it's a class or something more individualized. So while many people begin with books and they begin with self-study programs, people often find that they just wasted time and put themselves off track because they started that first when they never really learned that way effectively in the past. Amy, do you agree?
1: I'm going to add something very practical, and that would be, I think you've got to consider things like your timeline, your budget, your goals, right? So depending upon when you plan to take a test or when you need those test scores, you've got to consider what amount of time that you have, because that may influence whether you have different options of you can start as a self-prep or maybe you elevate that prep versus knowing you have to have a test score by a certain time. And if you have a certain goal in mind, you may realize that trying to sort of, you know, fiddle at this for a while. You don't have the time to be able to achieve that goal. And then, obviously, lastly, for some students, it's going to be the budget. You know, how much money is at stake here? Um, in the world that Mike and I operate, oftentimes with college admissions, we see lots of students who are trying to leverage test scores for the financial benefit. You know, of scholarship. And so, oftentimes, the conversation is, "What's going to be the return on investment?" So I can justify spending a certain amount of money knowing that at the end of the line, if I get a $10,000 year scholarship or more, putting in $500 or $700, you get a huge return on that. So to me, those are some of the considerations about kind of how you may look at what kind of preparation you might want to, you know, kind of embark on.
0: All right. Let's say for the moment that all the options are, are equally expensive. Okay. And let's say they, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it easy for you folks. <laughs> <laughs> All the options are equally expensive and, or, or inexpensive, depending upon your perspective, they cost the same and they have four months to prepare. So they're doing okay in terms of time. In that case, you hold the other things constant. How can an applicant, now you said, you know, some are autodidacts, Mike, which I think was an excellent point, but for the non-autodidacts, what are some of the criteria i mean would let's say distance away from target score be a factor would difficulty in one particular area or in both areas of an exam or multiple areas of uh, multiple areas of exam depending upon the exam be a factor i mean what would you advise that that client
2: i'll just jump in and Go say ahead. that those factors definitely dictate because the more specific a person's need the more mm-hmm. likely individual instruction is is necessary 100% yeah
1: um, I would I would also say that, you know, I and I do, when I talk to families where let's say the student is really starting at a high level, yeah. uh, there is no question that a few tips or tools or suggestions may be all that student needs. And so self-prep is, you know, they just need some guidance, right? Some guidance and kind of in, in launching. The lower a starting test score, oftentimes it's very difficult to self-prep because you kind of, you either don't know what you don't know. And you are getting a low score because you don't know or don't understand material. So being able to sort of teach yourself is oftentimes not as much in the card. So I would certainly use a benchmark of, you know, average to below average scoring on whatever test it is. I think it makes self-prep a much more difficult and frustrating road. I often use, and this is an analogy of short leash, long leash test prep. And I'll tell families or students, If your student is starting at a high score, I'm probably going to keep them on a long leash, which means I'm going to let them loose with some guidance suggestions, some ability to reach out and sort of here's what you should be doing independently versus that short lease. If someone's got a lower score, I'm going to keep them tight because I want to make sure I'm monitoring that and giving suggestions kind of at every little step to make sure that I can even help with frustration so that someone doesn't get so frustrated that they want to give up. Yeah, right.
0: Mike, do you have anything to add on
2: that? Well, I would say that then this ties into how important it is that when a, when a person has a sense of his or her timeline and budget, that he or she seeks out the highest level of expertise possible, because what Amy just described is a realization that is earned over decades of working with students and understanding different types. So assuming that the calculus is that higher test scores on a graduate admissions exam opens up the opportunity to have a better chance of getting into the target school and knowing, and Linda, you can attest to this, that the more prestigious certain graduate programs are, especially on the business and the law side. The
0: professional side. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. The the more money you're likely to make when you graduate. So knowing all of that, you want to invest in expertise. You want to look at, you know, it could be an individual or an enterprise, but, when you're considering who you're going to be personally working with. How much experience does that person have? How effective has that person been? If that person is part of an organization, what is the history of the organization, especially in terms of positive word of mouth, lots of referrals? Do they have a specific curriculum that's proven? Do they use official practice tests? And you know, for all of the graduate exams, there's abundant material available, Like there's a lot of different questions you want to look at and not just seek someone out because that person impressed you in a phone call or comes in $10 per hour under others. Think think about how successful that individual has been and how experienced that person has because test preparation is definitely the kind of trade that people get better at iteratively.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. And I I didn't mean to imply in any way, shape or form that the time factors or the budgetary factors aren't important. They should definitely be considered. I just wanted to kind of move on, uh, (laughs) push you a little bit more. Okay. (laughs) Um, Now, next question. Okay, so let's say our, our favorite applicant has determined the approach he or she wants to take. And there are many test prep companies offering multiple approaches. Most of them offer online classes. Most of them, many offer tutoring. Some offer only tutoring. Some offer only classes. Some offer only online self-guided options. But there are so many options out there. How can an applicant, I guess you partially answered this question with your last response in terms of experience, but how can an applicant evaluate both the company and the if if they're going for tutoring, the individual tutor?
1: So I'll I'll take that. I I would say to you that- one of the things that I think is so amazing within our industry and Mike and I, with our work with the National Test Prep Association has found, is just full-time tutors, right? A lot of people take for granted that that somebody who's going to work with you is more of sort of like a, a gig worker, right? Yeah. And, and some people do this work for a very short period of time. It fills a gap in their, they might not consider it their professional career, but certainly Mike and I look at it as a profession, the idea of... I. Do this full time. It is all I do. It's all I think about. I'm always, like Mike said, iterating. I'm always thinking about how I make something better. And that's one of the beautiful things about why you want someone who does this full time is that means they're just they're constantly refining because as you get new students, you know, our timeline for students is you, I don't say we churn them out, but we do. They're you they're in, they're out. And so you have this capability to just get better and better. Um, because you're constantly doing it. Um, another thing I'll mention add to what Mike even said is just materials-wise, it is so critical in our industry that students are working on official practice test material, right, to get as close to the test maker as one can. And there are certain tests out there that I would say it's a little harder to come by the official material. But the basic idea is that if some, While some people will create their own material, create their own tests for understandable reasons, you really want to be working, you know, kind of at the source. And so that's another criteria is what material do you have your students work on as far as, as taking practice tests goes. And I'll throw one extra thing in there. I'm highly suspicious of anyone who has a guarantee, right? In terms of guaranteeing someone's success, there are so many variables at play. Um, and you've been mentioning them how much time do you have, how much you're trying to improve. So there are a lot of factors that we as test prep providers cannot control for. And so when someone says, I can guarantee you a certain score, very often the, the guarantee, fine the fine print yes. is so, and when I see the fine print, I kind of laugh because I know where it's coming from. And often it might be in a, from a good place but I will never tell a parent that I would guarantee anything much like I would say if I was going to a weight loss program and someone was going to guarantee, (laughs) you know, the 50 pounds I would like to lose. You know, we all know that on the weekends when I want to, you know, have chips and salsa, that probably wasn't on the plan. (laughs) 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 Right. You're not in control of the process. You can
0: only Mm -hmm. recommend, right? Mm -hmm. Mike, what do you want to add to this?
2: You know, Amy really covered, all the points so well. I, I want to reiterate that point about full-time tutors because a lot of people, that's outside of the scope of their awareness is that they're used to the person who, you know, tutors math after school. um they're used to the grad student that's trying to make a couple of extra dollars. But you know, Amy and I are part of a tradition. And a network of educators around the world that focus not just on working with students individually as a career, but engage in a lot of professional development. We think about all the jobs. Like, So would you want to work with the tutor who has a full-time job and does professional development in that job and then sees you after work? Or do you want to work with a tutor for whom this is work, but also not just work? It's usually people who choose test preparation as a profession do so because they love their job everyone everyone in our industry yeah. feels very fortunate because we really do love to deliver this kind of education and then we talk about it a lot so if you're working with a full-time test prep professional chances are you're talking to somebody who is actually excited to keep up on all the latest changes in the particular test you're focusing on changes not just in content but platform and implications And that person becomes part of your support team to reach your goal. Okay,
0: great. Thank you. I'll tell you what, Mike, I'm going to ask you the next question. Obviously, Amy, you can always chime in. I'm not (laughs) fussy about that. Um, If I took the SAT or the ACT and I did well on the exams, can I be confident of a good score on the relevant grad school exam, the professional exams, let's say the GMAT, the LSAT or the MCAT?
2: Let's say yes and no. right? right. If you got a great score on your SAT or ACT, it shows that you have some attributes that will contribute to success on a graduate test. Mainly, you are not intimidated by standardized exams, whatever you did to do well on those tests. If you're willing to replicate that process, then you should see similar success. But the content that the GMAT, the LSAT, the MCAT MCAT test is markedly different. The GRE is actually most similar to the SAT. So yes, it's the same thing if you didn't do well on the SAT or ACT. Are you guaranteed to fail the GMAT, LSAT, MCAT on that scale? And the answer is no, you're not guaranteed, but you should recognize that whatever was challenging for you with those tests will continue to be a challenge until you learn to overcome that.
1: Okay. Yeah. I will, And I'll, I'll say the same thing. I think with the GRE especially, We definitely see that, especially when I see students returning who may have worked with me for the SAT or the ACT. You know, those sometimes those challenges like of math will rear their ugly heads. But sometimes with the grad level tests, in a way that, you know, at least with math, you think a student has just is completing their third year or their fourth year of math in high school. So math should be fresh. It is a little bit different at the college level because for grad tests, you can find students who have done no quantitative work at the college level. So in some cases, you may find that they might not even be as strong with math as they might have been in high school, given that they may have had no interaction with it. Although I will say this, at the high school level, students are in a good position. At least they have some options as far as choosing between the SAT and ACT, given that all colleges will take either score. What has been very interesting, at least for me at the grad level, has been this a similar development as far as students having the ability to choose between possibly a GRE or a GMAT or an LSAT. So I do find now what is interesting is that advising grad students on you came to me for the GMAT, but let's talk GRE, or you came for the LSAT. Let's. I actually try to. I try to, if I can, all kids for me, if I can get them to the GRE. Why I will say. I find the preparation for GRE to be a little bit more straightforward. Now, in the when I first started doing GRE way, way, oh my God, a long time ago, at that time, I will say the SAT and the GRE back in the 90s and early 2000s, the SAT and GRE weren't any different, right, Mike? I mean, they were both written by ETS yes. and it was a natural hopping point to be like, well, what should you do for SAT prep? You're going to do the same thing for GRE. That is not true today. You know, so given like the Jerry having quantitative comparisons that these students have never seen, there is a difference there. But but I would say that, like Mike said, you know, you figure out if you did preparation for your SAT or ACT, you you know what it may involve, what it might take, and you're gonna start to reboot that. And some things possibly from why you did well earlier will help you. And then you may have to supplement or augment, like in today's world, the Jerry focuses on vocabulary. The SAT and the ACT don't. That's a big difference. It is a big difference. That that some students will have to reckon with. What what amount of work do they want to put in towards you know improving their vocabulary when they're right. taking the GRE?
2: I will say you have to hope that by the time a student gets to a graduate test, he or she did a lot more reading than <laughs> was done in high school. Uh, right. You know, so so the depends verbal depends on the
0: field. <laughs> depends <laughs> yes, on the true. field.
2: The verbal sections of the test. I mean, a, again, if you're applying to law school you should be a really strong reader. And a weakness in that area, if it comes out and it impacts your ability to score well on sure. the LSAT, well, that's a deeper issue for how well you're going to do in law school in general.
0: Right. You know, way back in the dark ages, when I took these, the GMAT and my sister took the LSAT, she, I, I did okay on the exam, but I frankly don't remember the score. And I think that this was rescored somewhere in the 90s. And that was before, that was after I took the exam. But my sister... And we had very similar grades, but she she got, and she did on all standardized tests extraordinarily well. She either got an 800 at the time, the the, the scoring scale was all 800 for the LSAT and for the SAT. She got, I think, 1780 on one of the SAT exams. And otherwise she got 800 on the SAT. And then when she took the LSAT, she actually wasn't, she was planning to go into psychology, but she somehow got an internship where she was exposed to law and she kind of decided to take the LSAT on a lark. So she got a book because at the time, the common wisdom was that you don't need to prep for these exams. Right, right? Maybe like I remember before the GMAT, I got a book on GMAT prep because I hadn't done any math in college and I knew I had to up that. And she got an 800 on the ELSA.
2: <laughs> <laughs> She's, so you're talking about a certain type of person that exactly. does very well on standardized tests. Right. And it's true. It's it's certainly, that's how I fell into test prep. And when I got my start with Kaplan, I took all the different tests. You know, I would have to teach them. They'd say, okay, now it's time for you to teach GMAT. And I go, i never took the GMAT before. Well, you will. And USAT, <laughs> you're going to do GRE. So there is absolutely a... Um, a continuity of skills and strategies that help on all different tests. And if you can excel on one test, chances are you can excel on similar tests. Sometimes you have to pick up some content. I mean, no matter how good oh, you yeah. feel as a standardized tester, especially with the MCAT, I don't want to take the MCAT.
0: <laughs> right, wanna... right. <laughs> the MCAT is, is definitely uh, subject oriented. But I'm, I'm going to guess that there are some people like my sister who with almost no prep will do very very well and there are probably some people who are quite gifted who are going to really struggle with standardized tests.
1: Well, and I would chime in, you know, I yeah. was you know, I had sort of an interesting experience with tests in my in my in high school and that my first time it was very average. My second time was significantly above average and that was back in the days when you didn't prep. Right. And who can explain? Why the first one was, you know, so average and the second one was so much higher, which does speak to the idea of probably trying to test more than one time when possible if you think that you have the ability to raise the score. But I also say to students, you know i I feel like I've really earned my stripes over the years, you know, in terms of really learning what are what are good practices and techniques and strategies, and where do you have to review or study content? And so for me, I come from a place of, I don't consider my, I didn't consider myself like I'm a great tester, but it can be learned. It can be taught with motivation and dedication. And so that's what I like to bring to my students is yes, if this is important to you and you're willing to put in the effort, then you can improve your score significantly. Okay, great.
0: Now let's say, okay, I'm going to take whatever the exam is and I have... Um, let's say I'm either going to school or I'm working full time. I have other responsibilities. And I want to take the test in three months. Is that enough time? Or would two months be enough time? or one month? would one month be adequate? Should I take a weekend crash course?
2: Um, <laughs> I mean, you're describing a million different. I so know. <laughs> let's right, put aside. I mean, let's put aside the fact that this is clearly, A multivariable equation, which has to incorporate your baseline score, Mm -hmm. the amount of time you're able to commit, the amount of pressure that's distracting you from really making this meaningful, and how you learn best. We'll put all that aside, and we'll just say, how, how long is enough to prep? I love, and Amy, tell me if you agree with me. I love to look at preparation as a season, you know, we work with so many high school students, and even the th- the students that play the same sport every season, they're, you know, they're in a soccer club, they do club soccer, they do school soccer, they're always doing soccer. Each season is three months long. Mm-hmm. It's not one 12-month season, and there's an important reason why every sport is like that. Every musical, I mean, unless you're on Broadway and you're in something that's running for 18 months, basically... It, it,
0: Baseball is almost all year round now, but, <laughs> yeah, but, but,
2: but every performance begin from auditions and casting to get to the final rehearsal before the performance. It's about three months. three months. So you think about how long you can maintain your interest in working towards peak performance. And that's a good span of time to say that if I work diligently over a three month span, I may have room to spare or I may really be crunched at the end, but if I go for six months, if I go for a year, I'm gonna lose interest. It's I'm not gonna maintain that peak. The motivation tends to be
1: either, if there's an indefinite term, like I don't know when I'm gonna take the test, you don't tend to see the same sort of dedication, motivation, and I'll often say to students, especially my grad students, pick a date. Right. Get a date because you your perception will change when you know, there's a date on the calendar. And we do see that with a lot of our students is just their mentality changes as they get closer to like game time. And so sometimes getting the date in the calendar matters. Now, I will also say to kind of build in there. Well, I think grad level tests, the motivation is to be one and done. You know, that's there. I think there's a different mentality at the grad level that students ideally want to do one and be done at the College admissions level, I mean, I wouldn't tell I would always tell my student to take more than one, usually to see what you can really? do the second time. But but I would say at the grad level, you know, you do have to consider do you think you might like you'd ever want to consider the possibility of retesting? Because I find the term of when they're starting may not allow for a second test if they're not careful. So I think not that everyone should prep with the idea of I'm gonna t- test twice. But I do think you have to be careful accounting for that. And I find at the grad level, that means you, in terms of these seasons that Mike is suggesting, which is really important, the time that students in college have to prep for grad tests, they have to be very mindful of like, when are those pockets of time that they have that season? Often it's the summer. Maybe they're trying to do it over like the holidays, winter break, but usually it's tricky To pair this, I find, with college studies if they are currently rolled in in college.
2: Yeah. If you're a professional, if you're already working full time, then you have other logistical issues. The benefit, of course, is that uh, most of these grad tests have rolling testing processes. Now that they're on a computer. You You can pick your target based on not just the deadlines of the particular schools you're focused on, but what fits your calendar.
0: Right, mm-hmm. MCAT is actually a little bit more more limited in terms of test yeah. availability. Sure, but right. the GMAT and the LSAT, which and and the GRE for that matter, are are widely available in terms of of test dates. Which, which would both. change
1: things for our students, Mike. Right, like if a lot of our SAT ACT kids could take it any day of the year, can you imagine
2: what right. our year would I, 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 I think the GMAT
0: is every day of the year. I'm not sure about the LSAT. Um, off the top of my head, the GRE
2: they have all kinds of opportunities. Yeah, the GREs. Yeah, all the, the GREs.
0: Yeah, GMAT <laughs> is. The MCAT is much more limited. Yes, but MCAT test sure.
2: takers are a different breed. they different yeah, because many yeah. of them are going to take the MCAT during college. Like they have mm-hmm. a very specific. Uh, a lot of them do. While a the, lot while of them the, do, it's it's changed a
0: little bit. It's changed a little bit because they they are having trouble fitting in all the prereqs. Good point. In, in the you know the best time to take the MCAT in college is between the sophomore and junior year, the second and third year. And it's just hard to fit in all the prereqs in those two years. Mm -hmm. So more and more people are taking gap years after graduation and then taking the exam between the junior and senior years. I mean, but I I certainly, you know, I hear where you're coming from. We'll
2: contrast that with a GMAT. Completely taker, who different. May, who may be working? Uh, he may be working for years and has carrying a full time job. Correct. And planning for this next step.
0: And out of school for five years, and out of That's study right. habits for five years. Absolutely, very different. Very different. And then in the business school world, the, you also have the difference that the choice of exams at more and more programs is expanding dramatically. For sure. So from, from GMAC, you have the GMAT. You also have the executive assessment, which is starting mm-hmm. to more, more schools are are accepting, though still a minority. Some schools are accepting not only the GMAT and the GRE, but the LSAT, the MCAT, almost anything <laughs> that has an, alpha, <laughs> an, an acronym to it. Um, and, and, and more and more considering test waivers. But let's let's get back to how people can prepare. Right. What about tips for the day before the exam and the day of the exam?
1: Well, Go ahead, Amy, I usually would say like the day before the exam. I mean, in my world, I don't really encourage students to be doing anything sort of testy oriented the day before. A lot of times it's at that point, whatever time you've invested, that's what you're going to coast into the test day with. But I would would say things, you know, like your typical, like trying to get good night's sleep the few nights prior. So you're on a kind of regular schedule. Certainly you want a good night's sleep the night before the test, but don't go to bed too early, right? Like there's that idea of like you go to bed and then you like wake up and then you're you're up and you're you know, wired, maybe you're looking at a few of your materials, a little bit of like review. If somebody really feels like they want to do some review, I usually say, don't do more than an hour's worth of review the day before the test. I, I will use myself as an example. When I I took the LSAT years ago and where it was offered was a site I, I wasn't familiar with. So for me, part of my ritual was the week before driving to where it was. So I knew, well, where am I going to park? How much time will it take to get there? Is there a parking garage where I need to allocate the time to get from, you know, there to the site? And those were all things I did to sort of minimize any test day stress. So for example, making sure that when you wake up on test day, you're in your Zen, it's like this process of just easing into it. So it was like, So when you wake up in the morning, I say, give yourself plenty of time to get to where you need to go, you know, and if it's winter time, make sure you're planning for weather. Is there going to be snow and you've got to like figure that out? Make sure you eat a good breakfast and plan time for that. You know, so everything much like an athlete. You're, you know, the athletes who wear the headphones, it's like, I'm just in my own zone, making sure that test morning leading in that everything sort of leads in really smoothly. And I had accounted for all of that like prior to my LSAT day. And long story short, the funny story is, I went for breakfast before, because like, this was, I'm not even making my own breakfast. And when I get up to leave for breakfast, I realized I left my admission ticket at home. Oh, <laughs> and it was oh like, no. best day oh, planning, no. right? But which is why I tell students too, and I, this has happened with my own kids print okay. out your admission ticket. The day before so that your printer works your ink works you know so again and put it any, in your purse or whatever you your taking, purse, set it out right, ahead of time right. but again put all in the of car these, <laughs> all of these behaviors what i'm suggesting are behaviors to make sure there's nothing there's no headspace the day of being devoted to logistics it's all about getting to the test
0: okay great mike do you have anything to add?
2: you know amy shared indispensable wisdom regarding <laughs> doing well on a test. Control every detail and aspect of your day that you can ahead of time so that you can focus on what you're doing. And I think it's really helpful for people to look at events like these as pivotal moments that deserve their full focus. And I would I would urge someone who was getting ready for the GMAT to prepare for the day itself as if they were actually giving a big presentation or making a huge sales presentation. I would ask someone who's applying to law school to think, what if this was going to be your first big case? How prepared would you want to be? How confident would you want to be? How comfortable would you want to be? What would you do in advance? Because these are moments we know that you can retake the test if you have to, but you don't want to (laughs) if you can avoid it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these are snapshots of your potential. And the more you can do to narrow the gap between your potential and your actual performance in the moment, the happier you're going to be with your results. So take it seriously. That's, you know, just treat it like it's a really important day it is. And, and put everything off until after it. And then hopefully if you do that, you won't have to go through the process again. Mm-hmm. You'll be really proud of your accomplishments.
0: Do you have any advice specific? Now, we mentioned a minute ago for for graduate applicants who are retaking the test. Now, we mentioned a minute ago that graduate applicants really usually don't plan automatically to retake the test. They go in generally with the attitude of, let me see what I get. If I'm satisfied, I'm done. That would be the ideal outcome. But if I don't get the score that I want, then I'll I'll have to retake. If somebody is retaking for the second or third time because they didn't get the score they want, what suggestions do you have for them?
2: So first, get back on the horse. Don't, Don't allow yourself to perseverate over your failure to reach your goal and put it off until everything that you learned in preparation for the first test faded away and you're basically starting over. And be honest about why you didn't get your goal, okay? If you didn't reach your score goal for content reasons, fix it. If you didn't reach it because the form of preparation you used wasn't aligned properly with the way you learned best, upgrade. If it was simply performance, you got anxious, that means you need more practice testing. Like it, there are different reasons why people don't hit their goals, but iterate quickly. Get, you know, whatever it is, identify what the problem is and address it And you don't need another three months, right? You know, you, you want, you want to shorten that cycle there to leverage all the good things you did going into that first exam.
1: Yeah. And I would, I would definitely concur with that. Like the idea of looking at what are the pieces or parts where you felt like you were more vulnerable or resulted in the, in the less desirable score, you know, in some cases, like if it's the GRE and you feel like it was the vocabulary that sort of, Gave you a run, well then you're gonna to have to look back at well what amount of vocabulary prep did I do and am I gonna to have to really think differently about that prep going into the next one? You know, if I found that in the math or quantitative there was geometry and I wasn't as prepared for it, then you're gonna go back and you're gonna you're gonna dig into that geometry. So if you can ideally if you can kind of really figure out kind of on, on a more you know kind of a microscopic level what are the pieces parts then that's where you go back and you kind of dig into those, to those areas. And secondly, you consider some things with the modality of what, what choices did you make in your prep the first time, right? If you chose to self-prep, maybe you need to have some intervention and somebody like Mike or I coming in to help out. If you didn't practice as frequently you should have, maybe you up the reps, you know, so you start kind of much like an athlete. You're, you're looking at why didn't I get the performance at that game? I wanted to, and you're you're watching that game day tape. Okay. Let me see in action what happened. And then, you know, you're going to figure out what to do differently.
0: Right. That's one of the things I always ask uh, applicants. They say they want to retake the, the GMAT or the MCAT or the LSAT or whatever the, you know, the acronym is, what are you going to do differently? What went wrong? What are you going to do differently? I was very impressed with my seven-year-old grandson recently. My son and his family live in Israel, and he is attending Israeli schools, and he's just starting to learn his letters in English. And somehow it's much more fun to go over them with grandma than with mommy. So I get the job of going over his letters with him you know, on, on Zoom. And he was going through them, and I was really impressed because he knows most of them actually really well, and he puts them in a certain pile. The ones he doesn't know so well, he puts in a different pile. And when we get through the first pile, he goes immediately back over the ones he didn't know. I think for a seven-year-old, that's pretty good.
1: That's a that good study skill strategy. <laughs> Absolutely. That's good for and a 27 or a
2: 37-year-old. <laughs>
0: yeah. And and that's the thing. When you're, when you're trying to learn something, it's more fun to go over the stuff you already know. I, I get it. The stuff you're good at, but that's not what you need to do. You need to figure out what needs to change, what you need to do better at. So remember my seven-year-old
2: grandson when you're taking it's, those exams. It's a powerful lesson there. The, the more clear-eyed you are about evaluating the cause for a failure, the less likely that can be termed a failure, rather a step to ultimate success.
0: Right. I, I, I've quoted this before on the podcast, but I don't think it was with you. A mistake that you don't learn from is a failure. Yes. yes. And otherwise, it's a learning experience.
2: Love it. All
0: right. I think it's uh, Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, we, we talked about the fact that graduate students are frequently working full time. This is true of increasingly true, really, of all the professional programs and even some of the academic graduate programs. They're working full time. They've been out of school. They might have not been in school for five years or more. They're non traditional applicants in that sense. And they probably haven't prepped for a test in five years or more, however many years they've been out of school.
1: Any advice for them? my first piece of advice is I do find that they shot, they want to shy away from actually taking a practice test. Oh yeah. And yeah. oftentimes I'm like, no, you need to take one to launch. You want to take a full practice test in the format that you're going to be testing. Meaning, you know, you adults right now today, probably they may not have ever taken a test in a computer based format, which is what most of these grad tests are in. So You know, kind of taking a test, seeing what the scores are. And like we said, evaluate what are some of the things that went, didn't go well or did go well. But I do find, at least in my experience, it's usually intimidation by the quantitative components. When they've been out of school a long time, um, especially if they've been engaged in a career that's, you know, more reading and writing, the math seems to really intimidate. And so I think then they've got to determine. What level of math review do I need? Because you have to quantify then how much time is it going to take you to work your way back through arithmetic and algebra and geometry. And it's hard. That is the one aspect that I'll tell them. I can't give you a number. I can just say that get a baseline score you know, from practice, dig into those areas you are weaker and then start to realize you're going to have to say to yourself how many hours a week Do you want to devote to, strictly speaking, the math review, working with the math, you know, and that's what I find with those students. That's a big consideration in what their timeline might look like that often would be different than a student who's currently enrolled in college and is, you know, you know, planning on going to grad school after college.
0: Mike?
2: I agree that a lot of students that are coming back to testing have certain deficits that they have to be. Uh, clear about and willing to overcome, I would urge them to not overlook the advantages they have over those individuals Mm -hmm. who test during college as part of just a process that they're not exactly certain about, but they know these are the steps they have to take. The individuals who are returning, they Mm -hmm. left school, they've entered the workforce. Now they have a career goal that aligns with attendance to some graduate program, they have advantages in terms of motivation, awareness. Hopefully they've developed great executive function skills. They're more organized perhaps than uh, college students. They keep better, healthier hours, right? And so (laughs) those those can be assets and it's important for those non-traditional applicants to leverage the assets.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. You know, a lot of times I'll, I'll talk to clients and, or, or applicants who aren't aren't yet clients and they'll say, you know, I got a score of this on my practice exams, but at the test it's more like this. Mm -hmm. And it it went down for those who can't see my hand motion. (laughs) And, um, I'll say, what what happened with, to what do you attribute that? And I said, well, I, I got nervous. I messed up on timing, anxiety, you know, nerves in a, in, a, in a nutshell. What advice do you have to kind of keep oneself calm on test day? Yes, Mike, you look very eager to
2: answer this one. so before we started recording, Linda, we were yeah. talking about how Amy and I are both proctoring practice tests, right? Tomorrow, right? Yeah. We're not right. doing it for ourselves. We're not doing it because we don't have plans during the weekend, we're doing it because nothing beats practice tests. Okay. So the idea that a person would be nervous, wouldn't manage their time properly, wouldn't know how well they were going to do, felt flustered at any aspect of the test often signals lack of adequate practice. So you have your preparation and people think about what they're learning from the book, what they're hearing from a teacher, but it's like the athlete who thinks that A coach telling her what to do is going to translate directly to the field without actually doing it. Uh, We know that doesn't work. And we know that for test preparation, the test piece is irreplaceable. So students should take advantage of the fact that each of these pivotal graduate exams has lots of practice material behind it. You know, the GRE, there are a number of available GREs. There's exponentially more LSATs available. LSAC mm-hmm. has always been great about providing as many practice LSATs as a person could bear to take. And the traditional <laughs> loss, that's a lot of touch. And you have to, you know, it's again, since we're, we're sharing aphorisms, I'll share the one that says, don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong.
0: Well, that's a great one. That's a really good one. I like that. Amy, do you have anything to
1: add to this? I do want to chime in because I think this is where um, what Mike is saying is so important, right? Taking practice tests. However, I think there's a misunderstanding. And I think this happens more with self preppers, I think, is that just taking practice tests makes you better at the test. So a lot of times, as we said earlier, if you don't have some introspection, about what you got on a practice test, and you don't go back and look at what you got wrong and evaluate what are the gaps, and then how do I fill them with some review or study? Then actually the practice tests are going to keep probably telling you the same thing. So it's it's often I find with a self-prep mentality tends to be to be voraciously sometimes taking tests with that lack of kind of introspection. So that's my suggestion. That happens a lot with
2: GRE students. Yes. They took all of the practice tests before they come to you. Yes. And then, but they didn't do anything between each test. Correct. And so they're like, well, now you got to help me. They didn't do what my grandson left.
0: did. They yeah. didn't put the, they didn't go my, back to the hard ones. Yeah, to, go ahead. to
1: use my weight loss analogy, it's like <laughs> just stepping on the scale every week <laughs> didn't mean I'm going to lose the weight. <laughs> Or going to the Weight Watchers
0: meetings, right? Correct. correct. That doesn't doesn't work. Right, (laughs) right. right. Might motivate, but doesn't, doesn't, right, right, right. Okay. All right. What do you see in your crystal ball for test prep and standardized testing on the graduate level? Do you see it going the way of undergraduate testing where fewer and fewer schools are requiring it, but students are still taking the test? I mean, what do you see? It's interesting
2: that you phrase the question that way, Linda, with the presumption that Test standardized testing has gone away in college admissions because no,
0: it hasn't gone away.
2: That's kind of like up yeah. and down, right? Like yeah. last year there was a more students than ever submitted applications without test scores. And it wasn't an, was only later that we found out that a lot of them were accepted at a lower rate than the ones with. Uh. So there is a trend with a lot of grad schools, especially graduate school specifically, not so much law and business, but grad school. Mm-hmm. There, A lot of schools waived the testing requirement for a year or two. Um, But we don't know what they learned about who they accepted from that. So I feel like, as far as testing goes, as long as schools find the information they get from a specific graduate exam helpful in making great choices about students, they'll continue to use them. LSAC claims, that LSAC produces the LSAT, and they claim that LSAT score is the single most predictive factor in success in law school, even more so than undergraduate GPA. Right. Mm-hmm. If that trend holds true, then law schools will continue to value the LSAT. If they can make those decisions without that criterion, they will. Right. It, it has to do with the value of the tests to them. But as long as the tests are there, test prep will be essential.
1: Yeah. And I do, I do feel like given, you know, kind of extreme grade inflation that we see not only at the high school level, you know, at the college level, I do feel like, you know, as much as we've had some leeway given sort of some people's access to tests and and becoming test optional, I do believe that we're going to start to see trends where without those test scores, we know less about a student's capabilities than we knew before. And I'm afraid that in this wave of to make it optional to accommodate conditions across the country, we're going to lose the fact that we also lost the ability to measure grades in a me- as meaningful a way because there's a lot of subjectivity to even grading oh, at the high enormous, school and college level.
0: Enormous yeah. subjectivity. I mean, yeah. you can take the same class in the same school and have two different teachers and the grading will be completely different.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think... I think we are going to see more of that as time goes on, that the scores, they serve a role. They serve a role. They serve a purpose. And they won't go away. But I think in some instances, they're going to put some things in perspective. You know, So for some students, they're going to want those test scores to put Especially, their academic record in perspective. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Especially if their academic undergraduate academic record is weak. Mm-hmm. Then the test score can be the way that the student shows, I really can do the work. Yeah. 100%. The
2: jockeying for um, relevance among some of the graduate exams is interesting in that in the past, the GRE was for graduate school exclusively, the GMAT was for business school, the LSAT was for law school. But now we're seeing a little mixing and matching. Oh, yeah. And if anything, that's an area to continue to watch because what we've seen in undergraduate admissions where the SAT and ACT at one time were almost, you know, kind of on separate paths. And if you applied to certain schools, you had to submit an SAT. If you applied to certain schools, you had to submit an ACT. Today all colleges accept both tests equally. And that means that for students for whom the ACT is a better test, they only have to take the ACT. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if you if the GRE is a great test for you and you want to go to law school, well you may not be out of luck or, you know, or vice versa, maybe it's the GMAT for you. I'll be interested to see as we progress if there's more of an expansion of options or if schools snap back and say, you know what, our brief dalliance with this particular test is over. We just prefer that one.
0: That would be interesting. Yeah.
1: What would either one of you have liked me to ask that I didn't ask? I I, actually, I'll throw some of that piece of advice I think is interesting. If a a student is currently enrolled in college, I I would really strongly encourage them to consider whether, even if they don't have immediate plans to apply to grad school or grad program, I would really consider getting a Jerry in the bag. You know, obviously, there is a, a timeline to when, you know, scores expire, and usually it's about five years. But I do feel like while you're in school and you're approaching graduation, it's not a bad idea. And the GRE, because certainly right now we're seeing this trend of the versatility of a GRE score, I am telling students you might want to consider taking one because you have a five-year period of time where you can use that. And the potential is you can use it for a variety of programs, you know, that. If you get in there under five years, you're like, oh, I, I may have a score and I don't have to worry about I'm four years out and now I'm back to studying math again or something like that. Yeah. Great advice. Thank you, Amy. Mike.
2: What you, you were like? so thorough, Linda. I mean, you <laughs> guided this conversation <laughs> perfectly. I'll add one final point just about the value of the tests from an applicant's perspective. For most people looking at graduate school, law school, business school, This is just another burden, another hoop that they have to jump through, especially if they're not projecting the score as well as they'd like. And I urge people to consider a shift in perspective to see this as another way to train up to be fully ready to excel in graduate school. There's a reason why each graduate program finds the test valuable and picked out complementary skills to what you're doing in college. Not exactly the same, but complementary. There's a reason why high scores might correlate with high achievement and vice versa. So, you know, take the the note (laughs) that your scores are giving you.
0: Right. Amy and Mike, I want to thank you both. This has been absolutely delightful. Thank you for joining me today. Where can listeners and test takers or future test takers learn more about you and both your works?
1: Amy, why don't you start? So you can reach me at Amy at SeelyTestPros.com. And that's Amy, A-M-Y at Seely, S-E-E-L-E-Y, TestPros.com. Okay, great. Mike.
2: Uh, you can reach me at Mike at ChariotLearning.com. You can find both of us at TestAndTheRest.com. That's the Test and the Rest podcast. And if you happen to be in the test prep profession, seek out National Test Prep Association.
0: Sounds good. Now we're going to l- include links to Chariot Learning and to Sealy Test Prep Pros, as well as Tests and the Rest podcasts on the show notes. And listener, I want to thank you too for joining Amy Sealy, Mike Bergen, and me for our 443rd episode. Again, you'll find those links at exhibitcom slash 443 to the websites that Mike and Amy just mentioned, as well as to other resources and, and interviews of interests. A quick reminder, master the paradox at the heart of graduate admissions by downloading our free guide, Fitting In and Standing Out, The Paradox at the Heart of Admissions. You can get your copy at com slash F-I-S-O as in fitting in, standing out. Again, that's accepted.com slash F-I-S-O. And a final request, if you find the show worthwhile, and I don't know how you couldn't find this one worthwhile, uh, Amy and Mike, did a great job, please share the word by leaving a review on iTunes. Your doing so helps us spread the good news about Admissions Straight Talk. You can leave that review really easily by going to love lovethepodcast.com slash A-S-T. Thanks again for coming. This is Admissions Straight Talk produced by Accepted. And I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week.